Listen, I'm excited about our message this morning because this is like the eighth and final uh, installment of our sermon series about the Holy Spirit be always being filled is what we've been calling it. Now, this is probably going to be maybe the most uh, controversial of all in some regard, especially culturally. Like, you know, we've been through different things, but we're going to get into the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit this morning. So if you want to, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to work through this verse by verse But I'm calling this message, Cultivating Fruit, Crucifying Flesh. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Amen. So Galatians 5, 16 through 23, it says this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Man, that is a list. He says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let's pray together, if you will. Father, we're just grateful for your presence this morning. And Lord, we thank you for your word, God, because... Lord, we live in a time when when truth is is very hard to find. But we know, Lord, that when we come to your word, God, we find truth. And your word word says about itself, God, that it is the truth, that you sanctify us by your truth, and your word is that truth, Lord, that sets us free. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to bring this word alive. And, Lord, convict our hearts, Lord Jesus. Teach us what we need to hear, God, and give us an understanding so that we can be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for it, Father. We glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, you know, when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's kind of a very interesting uh, subject. And you see that he uses the metaphor of the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a metaphor that is used throughout Scripture. Matter of fact, God puts it in place in the very beginning of Scripture to set a precedent. Because when God creates all of creation, he looks at everything and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. He comes to human beings, he says, it is very good. Right? And when he sees human beings that they are very good, he sets them as the apex of his creation. He created animals and trees and the sky and the stars and all the beautiful things that we see. But the apex of his creation is you and I because we are made to image forth God himself. The way that we, one of the ways that we see God in the world is through one another as God images himself through us to one another in the world so that we can see the goodness of God, we can see the glory of God. But when God creates Adam and Eve, and what he does in the beginning is he places them in a garden and he names that garden Eden. So essentially, they're placed there in this garden that is called pleasure 
to cultivate it and guard it. God gives him a command. He said, look, y'all got to take care of this garden. He says, you got to make sure that no weeds grow up in this garden. And you have to make sure that no predators come into this garden to attack the fruits that you are trying to cultivate in this world. Because what Adam and Eve were designed to do is to cultivate the fruits of the kingdom of heaven so that earth would become a reflection of heaven the same way that humanity is a reflection of God. Now the problem is, is that they didn't do such a good job of cultivating this garden and guarding this garden. And we know the story, right? The serpent comes in, the deception, the lies of the enemy come into this garden. And because of that, the seed of sin is planted in all of creation. And there was a fundamental breakdown. All of creation is good. Our bodies are good. The things of this world is good. But sin has entered in and corrupted it and vandalized it. And we now see in ourselves a broken body, a broken life. Ultimately, we see death and we see creation suffering the consequences of this but when he puts them in there it's, it's interesting to notice of all the things I've thought about this a few times of all the things God could have created us out of if he says this is the apex of my creation this is the one that I that, that I've placed in charge in a sense to give dominion over the entire earth he could have created us out of anything I mean he could have made us gold-plated couldn't he he could have made us out of silver. He could have put diamonds on the inside of us. But when God chooses to make human beings the apex of his creation, what does he do? He stoops down. He grabs a hunk of dirt. You and I were made out of dirt, y'all. I don't know if you realize that or not. And you may ask the question, why would he do that? Why would he choose to make us out of dirt? And I don't know that this is the, 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 the full answer, but I believe part of the answer is because we know that dirt is the only thing that can host a seed. And when God looks to do something in our life, he gives us the metaphor of creation and, and how we see seasons change and how we see fruits develop and, and trees grow and life blossom and, 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 and seasons change and, and all of these things going on. He gives us a metaphor for the way that life works because ultimately anything that happens in our life takes place in seed, time, and harvest. And you know, in our generation, one of the things that we, you know, how many of y'all, you grow your own, your, your own food? Maybe like two or three of you, praise God for that. You know, do you ever actually have to go out and buy food, though? I mean, do you self-sustain yourself with it? How many of you own a microwave? We're a microwave generation. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you can, like, if you go buy a tomato in the store, it tastes different than a homegrown tomato. Would you say amen to that? But do you know that that homegrown tomato took a lot more work a lot more time, a lot more effort, a lot more attention to detail than the hydroponic garbage you bought somewhere, right? Because we live in this fast food generation, this culture where we want everything very quickly. And he gives us a key to spirituality in this because he uses the metaphor of fruit to demonstrate to us how we are to develop this in our lives. Because in Galatians 5.22, it's one of the most condensed descriptions of what happens in a person's life when they are led and fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, when you're fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you're walking in the Holy Spirit, you see love manifested. You see joy manifested, self-control, goodness and kindness. And he says, this is what, this is, these are indicators that the Holy Spirit has gotten control of your life and is producing something in your life. But here's the issue. If I tell you, look, y'all, these are the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, self-control, gentleness, kindness, go out and do that, all right? See you next week, right? How, what are y'all going to do? You're not probably going to go out day one, right, and, and just begin loving people just extravagantly. And the people are like, what's the change? Well, pastor told me to love people. What's the, why are you so joyful now? He told me to be joyful. Now, that's not how it works. There has to be seed planted. 
How many people ever, you know, how many people ever, they, they say, you know what, let's plant a tree. We're going to plant a fruit tree, Jeremy. We're going to go out. We're going to plant a fruit tree. Imagine me and Jeremy, we go out and we take a seed to an orange tree. We plant this or whatever, and we, we put it in the ground, and, 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 and we, we cover it up. We put a little water on it. Next day, we come out, boy, I'm ready for some oranges. You know what I'm talking about, Jeremy? I'm ready to eat some oranges. We go out next day. Where are the oranges at? It doesn't happen that way, does it? You know, matter of fact, if you read and study it, like, it, it if you plant a, a fruit tree, it takes three to five years before you're going to see any fruit on it. I was talking to Jessica last night because she's began uh, her own garden. She makes these, she grows these beautiful flowers. I asked her, I said, how long does it take probably? She said, average for a flower to grow, you're dealing with seed time and harvest. When you plant it, you're, you're looking at about 65 days average for, 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 the, the, for it to blossom and then become a full flower. And within that time, you're probably working on that about 65 to 80 hours in between that time. But see, it, during that time, when you're working, you're learning to water that thing, you're fertilizing that thing, you're taking weeds up, you're keeping off mildew and spots, you're making sure no predators come in and eat that junk. And even, here's the, here's the other thing, and this is the issue with many of us in life, if weather hits that sucker, it will likely die, won't it? You know what happens in the human being's life? Jesus said it in the parable of the sower. He said, many people will hear the word, but it will land on rocky soil and then because they have no root in themselves, persecution, hard times, a storm comes in their life and they produce no fruit. He said many of the seed is, is planted among thorns and weeds and they don't know how to weed out their garden and they don't know how to protect it. So the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches and pleasures in our life choke out the word and we become unfruitful. So what I'm saying about our Christian life is, listen, it's not something that you can just say, you know what, I'm going to be a better person and go out and do it. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes diligence. You can't hit three minutes on the microwave and be a loving person. It would be nice if you could. We'd just come in here and hit three minutes. I would preach a lot shorter too, and y'all would be like, praise God. And thank God he shortened it down. We got that microwave Christianity now. But you can't have microwave Christianity. It doesn't work that way. You can't apply 20th century principles to an age-old spirituality. And so he gives us this metaphor of fruit on purpose because it takes work to get the job done. And see, this is about character change. This is about, maybe this is the most important thing that we've covered about the Holy Spirit the entire time. And all of it's important, obviously, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. But the, the goal of salvation is honestly not even you going to heaven. Somebody said, oh my gosh. He just say that. The goal of salvation is holiness. The goal of salvation is union with God. Now you will end up in heaven eternally with him, right? And then we'll return with him on a new glorified earth in which we will live eternally. And heaven and earth will become one as you and God become one. But the goal of salvation is not you just going to heaven. He's not interested in you getting saved and living like the devil for the rest of your life. He wants you to look like heaven here on earth. Amen. Amen. That's good. And so he gives us this. And here's what he says in verse 16. Notice we read this. He said, I say then... Walk in the Spirit, 
and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we know that when we are saved, right? We talked about this early on. We're born again by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God draws us. We respond in faith. We're regenerated. We're born again. We walk through this. We're sealed by the Spirit of God and He will never leave us, never forsake us. He will be with us always. But ultimately, we have a responsibility to the Spirit to, to, see, to determine whether or not we're going to allow Him to change us into the image of Christ in the here and now. And what you don't allow him to do in the here and now, he's going to burn up on the other side. You understand what I'm saying? We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the things that were not formed into the image of Christ through our participation with the Holy Spirit is going to burn up in judgment. Amen. And so there's going to be a refining fire, so to speak. But we deal with this. And, you know, when people read this, I know this is very common practice. People tell me this all the time. I have conversations with guys that are struggling with sexuality, that are struggling with different sins. They're getting drunk. They're getting high. I say, buddy, come to church. We love you. We want you to be with us. And they'll say, man, let me get a few things together. Then I'll come to church. Do you know that this verse is saying the exact opposite of that? This verse says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It doesn't say don't fulfill the lust of the flesh and then you'll walk in the spirit. That's a big deal because for me, I don't know about you, I struggled with some addictions. I struggled with some sins that we're about to list. And what I could have said was, man, I need, to get, I need to quit some of these sins first and then I'll start reading the Bible. Then I'll start praying. Then I'll start worshiping. Then I'll start fasting. No, it was while I was still in the flesh that I began to pray, begin to worship, begin to, wor to walk in the Spirit. And all of a sudden, what I began to notice was that the flesh was losing its power over my life. So what I'm saying to you is no matter what kind of background you've got, if you're sexually broken, if you're dealing with addiction or drugs or alcohol, if you're lying, cheating, stealing, gambling, whatever, come to church, hear the Word of God. We'll teach you how to walk in the Spirit, and by, day by day you will learn to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's a good word right there, y'all. Because that means that it doesn't matter where you come from. Jesus died for you. He wants you to walk in the Spirit. He wants you to experience this life. We don't expect you to get it right day one because we're looking to plant a seed. It's going to take a while before the harvest comes. So don't get discouraged. Don't grow weary because the harvest hasn't come just yet. It's on its way, but we've got some work to do. We've got some weeding to do. He talks about this flesh, and he says, you know, we've we got the Spirit, but we're dealing with the flesh, and, and they're warring against one another. This is what he says in verse 17 and 18. He says, for the flesh... It lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you want to change, you desire change, you wish you weren't addicted to drugs, but you find this war going on on the inside of you? This battle. You don't want to be an angry person. You don't want to go off on your kids every time something happens. You don't want to lose your temper. But you see this battle. And then you act out in the flesh, but you feel the Spirit saying, no, you don't want to do that. And there's this war going, I've been there, folks. I've been there. I've been there where I didn't. I wanted so bad to quit doing certain things, but I did not have the power to yet do it. And see, this is why we're talking about the Holy Spirit, because He is the person that will ultimately enable us to live a life that is godly and Christ-like. And without Him, if you just tried, I tried so long to do it on my own, only to find the very fact that I could not do it on my own, I had to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. I had to learn to walk 
in the Spirit. But there's this battle going on on the inside of us. And you can find yourself in an intense situation. How many of you have been in an intense situation this week? Maybe with your spouse, maybe with somebody else, and something happened, you know what I'm talking about, and you just about blew your top. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> maybe you did. Maybe you went ahead and blew it. You know, I don't know. But you find yourself in this intense situation, and while you're in it, all of a sudden, you react one way or the other, but you feel that battle within oftentimes. And the way that you're going to respond to what's going on, ultimately, in my opinion, and based on Scripture, depends on which one you have been feeding the most. The Spirit or the flesh? Which one have you been sowing into? Have you been walking in the Spirit regularly? See, because we go, we go a week, two weeks. I can do as good as I can do up here as a pastor and try to love people and be good to people and, and, and try to be a good Christian person. But if I go a week, I go two weeks, I got no communion with God. I'm sowing nothing to the Spirit in my life. All of a sudden, I catch myself in some pretty sour moods. You know what I'm talking about. And you wonder what happened. Well, you've not even been washing yourself with the water. You've not even been watering the seed in it. You've not even been planting any seed in your heart. You've not been renewing your mind by the word of God, and you're facing this battle on the inside. And he says, you're in this battle. You're in this war. And he said, but let's make it clear. Let's make it clear. You need to know what it looks like when the flesh is in control of your life. And I love that about Paul because he pulls no punches. You know, in, in our woke generation, we wouldn't make these lists that Paul's about to make. This, the list that I'm getting ready to go through is not culturally acceptable but like, it's not popular but I'm gonna tell you this right now as Christians you need to learn very very quickly that you will not win a popularity contest if you follow Jesus he said if the world hated me it will hate you also and I need you to understand that we love all people it's never about us hating a group of people we hate no one because I'm, and I'll get to this but we all come from sin Every single one of us. But there comes a point when we say this is the standard that Jesus calls us to and we must repent of these things. And these are things that the flesh uh, demonstrates is at work in our life. And we have to be aware of those things so he makes it abundantly clear. And what he does, here's what he says. He says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. He says it's, you got evidence of what the flesh does, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. So he basically is going to set the works of the flesh into three categories. He's going to put them sexual, spiritual, and social. Be like, oh, pastor, he's going to go there this morning. He gives us these three categories and he breaks them down. And here's what I want to say. I want, I want you to understand that right now culture... Do you know that the evil one is at work? He is the ruler of this system of things. He's the lowercase g God of this world. He uses media and influence and all the things that you youngsters get involved in. You know what I'm talking about? And, and he uses that to subtly influence your mind to adopt a value system that is other than the word of God. Amen. Slowly but subtly. And his main real, his goal right now in culture is to get the church to adopt that same value system. Amen. And it's happening at an increasing rate. And if we ever relax on the Word of God or say, well, you know what, we'll preach certain parts of the Word of God, but we'll leave certain parts out because they may be offensive, what we will end up doing is being not Christian at our basis. And so here's what he says. He lists the first group, and it's, and it's sexual. He says adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. This word lewdness is, is also the word debauchery. I, re I remember reading those words for the first time. I'm like, I have no idea what he's talking about. 
what, what in the world's lewdness and debauchery and fornication? I don't know what that is. And so I started to look up the words, and specifically the word fornication. We all know what adultery is, but fornication is the word in the Greek language, pornea. It's the word we get pornography from. And really what he's saying when he uses that word fornication is he is saying it's sexual immorality is what it's translated in a lot of translations. But it's any act of sex that is outside the protective boundaries of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the biblical standard from the front to the back. We get into that more and more. But he lists these specific things and he says the first place you want to look in your life to see whether or not you're governed by the spirit of the flesh is you need to look at your, your sexual life. Amen. So he wants you to turn in. He says, this is where it's going to show up first. And let me tell you something. The reason we realize, we realize this if we just look at culture right now because it is everywhere. Lewdness and sexuality and, and all of these different types of things is being forced into our homes, upon our children, even government legislation that tries to awaken your children to sexual perversion at a very young age. Now, I know this is a delicate subject because it feels like, and the narrative has taught us that if you say things like I'm saying, that I am a hateful bigot. But we believe that what we're actually doing is speaking the truth in love because what we're saying is, is that all of us are sexually broken and need healing and need deliverance regardless of what we come from. But Jesus comes to offer that healing to that sexual brokenness. Not a one of us can come in here and say, oh man, we've been sexually pure for life. Anybody say that? Raise your hand. I'm, I'm like, we'll give you a dollar. <laughs> because Christians should never have the attitude of self-righteousness. Like, well, we got it. we've got our sexual ethic together. And these homosexuals and all of these people out here are ungodly. Let me tell you something. They need Jesus the same way you need Jesus. They need him the same way that you do. We all need this Jesus. And just because I may not be one form of sexual sin doesn't mean I'm not another. And I would say, I would venture to say that all of us would ultimately fall into one of those four categories and deal with that. But see, the Christian view of sex is often viewed as oppressive. It's archaic. And I've even heard, I won't get into it, I ain't got time to today. But I've heard so many podcasts and people who declare themselves to be Christians that are coming, coming out and saying very clearly and abundantly that they have adopted a, a, an idea about sex that is anti-biblical and pushing that for people so that, so that ultimately we can accept these things. But this is one of the most clear things in Scripture. See, the Christian view of sex is actually very profound because in our worldview, it's like, buddy, you know what? You need to be able to express yourself freely however you want to do it, whenever you want to do it, with whoever you want to do it because that's just how we're wired. And we're basically at the base level, we're all just animals. That's not what God teaches. That's not what Scripture teaches. I don't care what orangutans do. I'm not an orangutan. I'm a human being. And God designed me with a very specific plan. Did I always follow that plan? No. Was I sexually broken? Absolutely. Was I addicted to pornography growing up? I was. Did I know about the sexual ethic that Jesus Christ... I, I didn't really know it until I got into Scripture and saw for myself. Then I realized, man, I can't do this. And I cried out to God. And in that instant, He gave me the power of the Holy Spirit through growing spiritually to overcome my sexual sin so that I could live a life of purity. And what He does is He's calling everybody into that same thing. 
Am I, am I saying it's easy? Am I saying you ain't going to have challenges? Am I saying you ain't going to have to sacrifice and it be difficult for you? It will be. It'll be difficult for all of us. Whether you're a young man addicted to pornography or whether you're somebody that's struggling with homosexuality, it's going to be hard. But ultimately, we must submit our sexuality to Jesus Christ because our sexuality is not our identity. Jesus is. I've read a lot of books recently. I didn't know how far I would get into all of this, but I read a lot of books recently by people who grew up homosexual and they always were attracted to the same sex. And what they're basically saying at this point, at this particular point in their life, Jackie Hill Perry is one of them, wrote, wrote a good book. I think it's Good God, Gay Girl is the book, name of the book. An another woman, Rebecca McLaughlin, wrote a good book called Confronting Christianity. And these women grew up attracted to the same sex. But see, because of Christ, when they got saved, they chose to submit their sexuality to Jesus Christ because they had a greater love than themselves and their own personal sexuality, and his name was Jesus. And so they talk about this, and I don't, they, don't, they don't say that it's easy. Everything we do for Christ will ultimately have a sacrifice. We, we weren't necessarily made for this sexual brokenness that we're going through, but it's because of sin we got a battle to fight. We have a flesh that is, that, is, that is moving us in a direction. But see, here's the thing. Right now, culturally, there is pressure to adopt this new sexual ethic more than anything else, but followers of Christ must have the sexual ethic of Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Like if I'm going to say I'm a Christian, I should probably follow what Jesus says. If I don't follow what Jesus says, don't call it Christian and don't call it church. Call it something else. Make your own new religion. All kinds of people are doing it. But, but what Jesus says is he makes it abundantly clear because people say, well, you know, Jesus didn't, didn't really say anything about it. No, he, he said a lot about it. And he made it clear throughout Scripture. But Jesus said God created them male and female. You know, right now we've, we're dealing with issues of transgenderism and all kinds of things, man. And I, and I, and I feel for anybody that's, that would be a transgender. I, I, th I think Jesus Christ loves them. He died for them. He, wa he wants them to come into the fold. He wants them to experience freedom in life. He wants them to deal with all these things. And, and he loves them. And we should love them. No matter what the... But when you begin to think, like right now we've got transgender people that are, that are coming and competing in the Olympics with women. And you can say what you want to. This is not a political, I don't, I'm not even politics. Like I don't even, I don't watch the news that much. I try to, but at the end of the day, you have to understand that Jesus Christ makes it abundantly clear. You know what? God created them in the beginning, male and female, and he gave them the equipment. Amen. It's a very clear natural design. And so what we see, anything other than this, and I know not everybody in here is going to agree with me on this this morning. That's fine. I'm just teaching you what the Bible says. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and those two shall become one flesh, and they shall be united together forever, and they shouldn't get a divorce. Right? That's, that's his sexual ethic. Now, again, have all of us effectively followed that? No, we haven't. There's redemption. And I'm going to, get, I'm going to, I'm going to work through this slowly, but... We still, have to, we still have to hold the standard and teach our children what Jesus teaches. If they fail, is there mercy and grace? Yes. But does that mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, there's always mercy and grace. Do what you want to, son. It's no big deal. No, we have to be the ones who hold the standard of holy living up to our children so that they know how to live in a culture that is going the opposite direction. If we don't do it, no one else will. And I promise you, Joe Biden is going to teach your kids. 
And whoever else is leading the forefront of whatever cultural craziness is going on at the time in our life. And so, that, you know, the Pharisees ended up saying, well, Jesus, if that's the case, like if a man's got to marry one woman and stick to her his whole life, it'd probably be better if he didn't get married. That's what the Pharisees said. Because they was wanting to divorce their women and get another one. You know what? She, I tried her for a while. didn't work out. Take another. <laughs> and you know what Jesus said in response? He, he said this. He said, not everybody can receive this word, but it would be good for them if they could receive it. Because he said, many should choose to remain abstinent for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And you say, well, we can't do that, man. We got sexual desires and impulses. And I got to be with, I know, I understand all that. I got sexual desires and impulses. But I'm telling you, I lived a life for a season for several years where by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I was able to maintain purity. And I told the Lord, I said, Lord, look, here's the thing. If I don't, if I don't, if I can't do it, it's, it's, it's on you because I, 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 I'm going to struggle with this. But it's by the grace. He can enable us to live this way. I know this hurts because, again, we've all, we've all messed up in this area, haven't we? And I know some of you probably be offended by this, but that's okay because ultimately sometimes it's the offense that causes us to say, you know what, Lord, I am broken. I do need a little bit of help here. Not just a little bit. I need a whole lot of help here. And so here's what I want to say. There's a word on shame and redemption here because no matter what you've dealt with, I want you to understand that Jesus has a strong sexual ethic. He wants us to live by it. But he is also full of mercy and full of compassion. And he loves those who struggle. And then we got people, people have been divorced in here. I come from, from a family that's been divorced. Like these things are no secret, right? We struggle. We deal with these things. But see, this is why Jesus came to die on the cross, folks. Because we struggle with them. It makes the cross that much more beautiful. Because when we mess up and when we struggle and when we have these failures, we get to come back to a Savior who says, and we can say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I need your help. And what we experience is his loving arms saying, I will, I will bring you back to wholeness. But not only that, I'll give you the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can be changed and you do not have to stay the way that you are because when we deal with sexual brokenness, man, there's all kinds of shame. There's all kinds of condemnation. And if you're in here struggling with anything that I've mentioned, to this point, Satan is going to use it against you to shame you, to condemn you, to say you're not welcome in the church, to say you shouldn't be here. And I'm telling you right now, no matter what you have done, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. Jesus says he will accept you if you come to him, regardless of what you've done. But the point is, is that he lists these things in order to understand that if we are going to follow him, we need to know how to follow him. We need to know what he's empowering us to live like. And you know, in 1 first, in first Corinthians 6, 9 through 12, I love these verses. The first part of it, people don't like very much, but the second part of it is great. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, because there's a lot of deception in the world. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the next verse, though. This is where it gets good. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. A church should be filled with people who were all in that list that we just read. 
You know why? Because when they experience the love of God and the drawing of the Holy Spirit and the true conviction, look, I'm not interested in a church that just says live how you want to, man, because that's not true salvation. You're not experiencing true salvation. You get to be what you want to be and get affirmed in that, and that is not good. You don't get to experience the fullness of God. God says you were. He's speaking to a church and he says some of you guys were this. Some of y'all were sodomites. Some of y'all were thieves. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were all of these things. But you're not anymore because Jesus did something in your life and changed who you are. And this should be very simple, but man, it's getting muddy out in culture, y'all. And somebody's got to come forward and say, look, you know what? God loves everybody. He died for everybody, and such were some of you. I was in that list. You in that list? But we've been washed. We've been sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. The second grouping, so we went through sexual. Praise the Lord, we made it through that. Amen. Thank you all. Verse 20, he lists now spiritual sins, and he only lists two in this one, but he lists idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry is about giving our allegiance to something that is not the one true God. Whether you put your trust in government or you put your trust in science or you put your trust in the health care system, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you worship your kids above God. Maybe you put them first. Like there's multiple forms of idolatry, but ultimately we put something before God and we place our trust in something else. But these two categories have to do with how we deal with the spiritual realm. Now, the next one, idolatry, very common. It's just different than what we think it is often in American culture. But, but the second one is sorcery. And in, in a lot of translations, it will be translated witchcraft, sorcery or witchcraft. The word here is very interesting in the Greek because the Greek word for sorcery or witchcraft is pharmakia. What does that sound like to you? It's the word we get pharmacy from. Interesting, right? Now, if you read the Greek word and the definition of this word, the definition is, one, interaction with the spirit realm or evil spirits. You remember, in like the, I, remember I, I have this image in my mind every time I read that. But Because here's my thing. I don't know how many of you, you struggle with drugs, but I did growing up a little bit. And, and I remember trying to justify certain drugs in my life. I remember reading that and studying that and figuring that out when I was... Because, because it's like... You, here's, I got all kinds of people that come to me and be like, you know what, the Bible don't say anything about smoking pot, man. <laughs> How many of y'all know that? I think I, I said, I was hanging out with my buddies one night and said that. It don't say that, man. He gives that's good. That's seed-bearing fruit right there, baby. <laughs> and, pe and, people, and so you figure out ways to try to justify it. But the Greek word literally, the other definition of it is the, the use of or administering of any mind-altering substances. And I had the image immediately where I, where I, on a Disney movie, I don't even know what it is, but there was a big witch with a big crooked nose and a ward on her nose. She was green, and she was mixing what? A big potion, son. Why? Because she was going to use that potion to bring somebody into an altered state of consciousness. And when you use drugs that bring your mind into an altered state of consciousness, whether you like it or not, you open yourself up to the spiritual realm, but not with the Holy Spirit. And so when you bring yourself into an altered state of consciousness, folks, you're opening yourselves up to the demonic, and it is a work of the flesh. And he's saying you cannot open yourself up spiritually to this. Now, you could, you could bring in a lot of things, because right now what's very popular also is New Age religion. Amen. It's very popular. 
It's creeping in and women are getting books and watching Oprah and doing all kinds of stuff like that and, and reading this stuff. I'm, I'm going after it today, y'all. They're going to be 30 people in church next week. Praise God. But what happens is when you get into these other religions, what you're actually doing is they'll even add Jesus on sometimes. But they will deny sin and they will deny his work on the cross. And they will get into some big spiritual guru type stuff and talk about mediums and channeling and all this stuff and maybe spirit guides and all this mystical weirdness and start talking about how you got a divine spark within. And it is not Christian. It is sorcery. It's a work of the flesh. Amen. Preaching good this morning. Let's move into the third one. We went sexual, we went spiritual, and now we're going relational. And he lists eight in the relational box because in Galatia and in the church, he knew that ultimately sex was number one. Like people were struggling with it. They were struggling spiritually. But man, when we get into relations, they're very, relationships, they're very dynamic, aren't they? So he lists about eight of them. And in verse 20, he starts to go through these. And notice, notice what he says. So we dealt with idolatry and sorcery. And then we've got hatred. Hatred is enmity. It literally means that I got enemies, y'all. Anybody in here got enemies? He says that's a work of the flesh. Contentions, which is somebody, somebody who's contentious just loves to argue. You ever met anybody like that in the church? Do you, do you understand that right now he's actually speaking to the church? He didn't write this letter and say, hey, I'm going to write you this letter. Send this to the lost people. No, he's saying, this is what's going on in the church. There are people who are contentious and quarrelsome and love to strive and argue and have many disputes. That's what contentions is. And, and so jealousies then is rivalries. It's warning what another has. It's getting competitive with one another. And when jealousy and envy is at work in your heart, actually you don't like it when another brother succeeds very much because it pulls you down a little bit. Somebody amen me on that. That's good, ain't it? Y'all ever been in that situation? You feel like, man, they, they're doing good. Psh, I wish they wouldn't. That's what your heart says. And you're in the church house. It's like, she can't sing. That's good, ain't it? Flesh. Flesh. I love it. Then he goes on and he talks about Outbursts of wrath. Venting of anger is li literally what it would say, read in the, in the Greek. Venting of anger. How many of y'all, you just vent your anger? You get ticked off, son, you just lose it and blow your top. That's the work of the flesh, he says. Selfish ambitions. This is when I become self-willed and controlling for my own personal agenda. Flesh puts self first. Spirit puts others first and God first. Do you do it for your own selfish agenda and ambition or do you do it for God and for the Spirit. Then he moves into dissensions, right? And this is divisions or standing apart to separate yourself. And notice heresies is the next one because heresies is a lot like divisions if you look at the word. The word in the Greek is actually heresies and, and that's what it's called. But it literally means a strong, distinct opinion. And here's the thing. When we talk about heresy, it is false doctrine sometimes, right? Heresy or is false doctrine. When we teach something that is false, but what the word here actually means is a sect, S-E-C-T. And what the scripture is referring to is like, for example, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two different sects, right? 
And they were broken. Why? Because the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection and they didn't believe in angels and demons or supernatural things. And the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection and they did believe in angels and demons and supernatural things. And because of that, there was a division there. And they held firmly to their theological opinions to the point that they were going to die on that hill and they'd never associate with the others. That's what we do in our denominations, folks. And it's flesh. Now, Obviously, there are teachings that we need to learn. we got to say, you know what? We're going to divide on that. Because if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross under his hand, was crucified, died, and buried, but was raised again on the third day and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. If you don't believe that, we're going to divide over it. But there are some things, Calvinism, Arminianism, I ain't going to divide over it with you. I just ain't going to do it. I don't think it's that important that we can, because you know what I find is that people will argue and divide when they're not focused on reaching people with the gospel. When they're just focused on their church and they want us for and no more and they don't care about reaching the lost, you're going to see a lot of quarreling and arguing and theological heel dying. Amen. It's good, isn't it? So he lists these eight. And so if you want to see which world you're living in, you need to see the, 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 the health of your sexual life the health of your relationships, and the health of your spiritual life. Notice in verse 21, which I've already read this, he said, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice, notice the word practice such things. It doesn't say somebody who messes up once. It doesn't say somebody who struggles. It says those who choose to practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is you will come to a point in your life where these behaviors become such an aspect of your identity that by your own behavior, you are saying, you know what? I don't really want heaven. I want earth to stay exactly the way that it is. And so by your behavior, you're demonstrating that you don't want it. I know everybody said, well, I want to go to heaven when I die. Maybe you don't. Because heaven is a very particular way. And heaven will not receive these behaviors into its presence. And when you got there, you may not like it because right now you don't like it. You understand what I'm saying? So he's saying they're not going to inherit it because they're not living for it right now. It's, it's revealed by their very behavior. But then he says, but if you live a life controlled by the Spirit where you learn to walk in the Spirit, then you begin to pr produce fruit and it's cultivated over time because you ain't going to kill this stuff day one, y'all. I remember when I first started reading the Bible and praying, I was dealing with addictions and struggles and sins and all of these different things. And man, it was hard. For 11 months, it got worse, I think. I was reading the Bible, praying, worshiping, doing everything I knew to do, fasting. And for 11 months, I got worse. Crazier people were around me. It's like the devil tried to throw everything out. Because how many of you know when you actually start to move toward Jesus and say, I'm going to live for Jesus for real, guess what? The devil ain't going to let go easy, y'all. You better be ready for a fight and that's why you need to get some brothers and sisters on your side that'll pray you through and say, I'm going to stick with you. If you fail, come back to, you, to us. There's forgiveness, there's love, there's mercy because if it takes 11 months, if it takes two years, we're going to walk in the Spirit together until you find freedom. Amen. We'll walk with you. We'll walk with you. But he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Can I tell you that these things are cultivated in challenging environments? Nobody who's ever grown anything, it was just simple and easy, with no work. 
We're talking about a love that is cultivated in the face of people who hate you. Jesus had love for his enemies. We're talking about a joy that is overflowing when you're being persecuted. We're talking about a peace that subdues your crazy emotions when everything in your life is going completely insane. And so when we're dealing with this love, we're talking about not something that is an emotion, but an action that seeks the well-being of others. This love, this agape love that the Spirit produces is something where we say, you know what, I'm willing to lay down my life for your salvation and for your betterment. And when we talk about that joy and that peace, we're talking about something that is not dependent on how much money you got, how well things are going in your family, whether or not you got a nice car or a nice house. None of the American dream type things that we think of is what produces joy and peace. Can somebody amen me? Joy and peace is something that comes from the depths of your spiritual being because you have a deep walk in a relationship with God and the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, you don't know where it came from or why it is there, but you've got joy in your heart because you know Jesus Christ. And you know that no matter what comes on the outside, no matter what circumstance that you're going through, that He is working all things together for your good. And notice this, He gives you a peace that transcends understanding. You don't understand. If you looked at your life on the outside, you'd say, man, I don't know why I've got peace, but I do. And it's guarding my mind and it's guarding my heart and it's protecting me. And he talks about patience and kindness and goodness. And I don't know about y'all, but patience is something that has to be cultivated over time. Amen. How many of you got aggravated? How, anybody in here got road rage ever? Praise the Lord. We got a lot of work to do. Long-suffering, being able to deal with difficult people. Amen? See, really, when you talk about patience, when you talk about kindness, when you talk about goodness, it's basically the opposite of being a rude jerk. Y'all ever known some rude jerks? Some of us are, right? But the Holy Spirit's saying, that's not how I want you to be. I need you to learn how to cultivate patience and long-suffering with people. And when people are, you're aggravated with people, you can demonstrate kindness. And when you come to those moments when there's, you're at a crossroads and you're being tempted to react, whether it be sexual temptation or whether it be relationally, when you're being tempted to react, I have to, you got to practice this in your marriage, don't you? There are many times Andre will say something. You know how a woman knows how to push your buttons? You know what I'm talking about? And in that moment, I've got to decide. Are we letting flesh take over, Claire? Or are we going with the Spirit? And it just so happens that I've been with Jesus that morning. And the Holy Spirit says to me, Clay, we're going to go with peace right here. We're going to go with self-control. Now, every now and then, I'll be honest with you, I may react a little hot. We all act out in the flesh on occasion. But the Holy Spirit draws us back and says, no, I can give you power to overcome this and I can change your behavior in the day-to-day. I can transform who you are from the inside out. I can make you a new person. I can make you a new creation. We can make your character begin to reflect Jesus Christ. This is the goal of the Holy Spirit in your life. The main goal of the Holy Spirit in your life is that one day you will be like Jesus. Man, that's a good promise. One day you will be like Jesus. And every day that you live here on this earth, you can get closer to it because you're yielding to and walking in the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you see this goodness, this kindness, this faithfulness. You become a source of stability in people's lives. You ain't flaky. Spirit-filled people ain't flaky. They're willing to be faithful to what they've said they're going to do. 
they're gentle. They're not harsh. They're not rude. They don't carry a sour face on, on all the time. It's like they're just aggravated with everything. They're gentle with people. And then lastly, they have self-control. They have self-control. And you know, self-control, I've always said like this, it's the pause button. Because you know when something happens, you're tempted to react. What self-control is, is you just stop. And you say, before I react, I need to give the Holy Spirit a moment to allow me to respond. And I choose the Spirit. And He enables me. And the more I choose that, the more I see love cultivated. The more I see kindness cultivated. The more I see patience cultivated. And transformation is happening in my heart. And in verse 24 and 25, it says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. He's saying, look, you're Christians. You've got the Spirit. You're living in the Spirit. But if you're living in the Spirit, then you've got to learn to walk in the Spirit day by day and if you do you're going to crucify the works of the flesh in your life Galatians 2.20 he says I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in this body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me every day I gotta get up and preach the gospel to myself even if it's just in my mind to say you know what Clay Christ died for you and you no longer live, but Christ is the one living in you. Will you allow him to live through you today? Let me finish with these last verses and I'm done. Chapter 6, verse 7 through 10, he says this. This is the last word for it. He says, do not be deceived. So two times we've seen that today. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what a ma whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Jessica is not going to plant a flower seed and reap an apple tree. What you plant in your life is what you're going to see a harvest of, whether it be gossip or anger or contention or quarrel or strife, you're going to see a harvest of that in your life. But if you will plant God's Word, the seed of God's Word, prayer and love and kindness, you're going to see a harvest of these things begin to come up in your life. He says, for he, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And here's what I want you to understand. This morning, no matter what kind of struggle you've had, no matter what kind of background you come from, you do not have to lose heart. Don't give up. I don't care how long it takes. In due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. God wants good things for you. God loves you. Don't allow Satan to condemn you anymore. Don't allow the shame of your past. Listen, when I was a young man, I did some things that I am ashamed of. And Jesus had to come and meet me and say, Clay, I need you to understand that you are forgiven for this. That you can have new life. That you don't have to stay up under the shame of how you treated people and how you acted and the things that you did. I am forgiving you and I'm giving you a new life. That shame is no more in Christ Jesus. No matter what you've been or done or been associated with, Jesus washes it away. There's new life in Him. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. 
And this morning, I know there's a lot of people. I don't know where you're at. I'm not going to call you to the front. But I tell you what, I love to give people an opportunity to, to, to take a step in faith with Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit is drawing your heart this morning, and you say, you know what, I've not really given my life to Jesus. I've maybe even thought I was a Christian, but I know now today that I've not surrendered my life to Jesus. And I want to follow Him. I want to have eternal life. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want this salvation. Would you raise your hand? Just lift it up real quick and let me know that's you. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? Amen. Amen. Now for the rest of us, I know that the Spirit is speaking to us. And I'm telling you, I believe that He'll meet you right here. So I want you to pray. I want you to begin to pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning. And we are relying on the power of your Holy Spirit because we know that we will never be able to overcome unless you fill us with your Spirit and you empower us, Lord, to crucify and to put to death the works of the flesh. And Lord, no matter where a person has been or where they're at, God, what their past looks like, Lord Jesus, there is forgiveness. Lord, you took their shame so that they never have to deal with that shame again. Lord, all of us are broken sinners, but we need your Spirit. Lord God, help us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Help us to be more loving, even to the least of those among us, Lord God, to those who are broken, to those who are lost in sin. Lord God, help us to cultivate that love, that joy, that peace in our lives. We yield to you this morning, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to worship. This altar is open if you'd like to pray.